Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A few weeks ago, a box arrived at my door from eBay. Its contents were a kind of time machine that I hoped might solve a mystery from the 1990s. I've brought the box into the studio. I'm opening it with a couple of the show's producers. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. Alison Broverman and Zoe Tennant. Inside that box are two dusty, but this part is important, unopened bottles of this discontinued soft drink called Orbitz. They've been sitting around for 20 years at least. So naturally, we're here to conduct a taste test. Because even today, more than two decades after its launch, Orbitz is a legend in the drinks business. Its story is part triumph, part tragic comedy. The mystery we want to solve is whether Orbitz was way ahead of its time or just way too weird. Because the only thing that's certain is Orbitz is one of the weirdest bottled beverages we've ever seen. There are still these little balls suspended in the liquid. They're not all stuck to the bottom. I mean, it really does look like a party in a bottle. It's a day-glow pink and yellow party in a bottle. Orbitz's calling card, the thing that made it famous, Orbitz has these squishy beads in it. Even 20 years later, they just hang there, in orbit, suspended in this thick, sweet liquid. The bottles look like miniature lava lamps. But in the 90s, in Orbitz's heyday, people had another way of describing it. Orbitz became known as that drink with the floating gunk. Oh, this is really actually pretty <laughs> stuck. We fumble for a while to open them. Um, here. I mean, maybe this is where the taste test ends. The cap on the vanilla orange will not budge. Chris now has the bottle under his shirt. I do. He's using his plaid to... Oh, my God! There's a really awkward stretch in here, like several minutes of straining and grunting. It isn't pretty. Eventually, I just punch through the cap with a pair of scissors. Okay, we're in. We're in. Okay, I'm going to pour some out. But just before we taste it, I want to take you back to the 1990s. When, for a while at least, Orbitz became a runaway hit. The reaction we got was phenomenal. Yeah, everybody wanted to try it. And maybe they'd even buy another bottle so that they could show it to their mother or cousin. It was self-explanatory. You go into a store and you saw, you know, that packaging, the gelatin balls. It sold itself. At its launch, I'm thinking, we've got a billion-dollar baby here. Orbitz arrived at this transformative moment in popular history. For decades, the non-alcoholic beverage business had been a battle between pretty much just two sides, Coke and Pepsi, with Dr. Pepper occasionally kind of tiptoeing in to interrupt. 
In the 1980s and 90s, the company's ads were a soundtrack of the era. And at least in retrospect, they were kind of awesome. MC Hammer, rap star and Pepsi drinker. They hired David Bowie and Tina Turner at the same time for the same commercial. Cindy Crawford and Madonna, the cast of Stomp, even Ray Charles, Brother Ray, the high priest, the genius of soul, fronted for the soda giants. One of the reasons they spent so much on advertising is that as the 1990s took hold, the ethos of the time was individuality and self-expression. People wanted to try new things that weren't Pepsi or Coke. They wanted to try things like orbits. In this episode, Billion Dollar Baby. The untold inside story of a product launch so promising, so innovative, and so epically disastrous that even 20 years later, its lessons still reverberate through the beverage aisle. So why don't we go ahead and start? Certainly. Well, my name is Douglas Mason. Doug Mason is what you would call a serial beverage entrepreneur. In the 1980s, Doug handled marketing for one of North America's first energy drinks. It was called Jolt Cola. But before Jolt, before the energy drink category could ever catch on, he left the company. And today, that category, energy beverages, is a $45 billion global market. We were there before uh, they were there, but just too early. His next project, Clearly Canadian, that became a hit at least for a while. Sparkling water imported from Canada with natural fruit flavors. Clearly Canadian. Clearly Canadian was this premium-priced, sparkling, fruit-flavored water, one of the first of its kind. It sold across the continent, appeared on TV shows like Seinfeld. It turned up in gift bags at the Oscars. It was kind of like the LaCroix of its time. It was a huge success. It went from no sales to over 200 million in three years of growth. It was a meteoric rise. Alongside Snapple, that brand helped pioneer what's now called the New Age beverage market. And we're credited with being one of the early founders and developers of that category. But while Snapple's founders sold their company for $1.7 billion, Clearly Canadian was not for sale. Doug even turned down a buyout offer from PepsiCo. Those are two of my biggest uh, mistakes in life, but uh, they're lessons learned. And so Orbitz became the Clearly Canadian company's resuscitation plan. Because by the early 1990s, Clearly Canadian, the beverage, had hit a wall. The wall was hit mostly by labeling laws that came in, which finally told consumers actually what was in, in all drinks. This is Jonathan Cronin. He was the company's VP of marketing. In 1994, a new law required food and beverage companies to list how much fat and salt and carbohydrates were in their products. And this best-selling, sparkling water brand that Doug Mason had built, that most people thought was all zen and totally good for you, it wasn't quite that 
clear. And hold on, wasn't clear the Canadian just beautiful water and a little bit of natural flavoring? It was beautiful water, natural flavoring, and there was a little bit of sugar in it. By so, a little bit, what do you mean? It was about the same, a little, a little less than a Coke or a Pepsi. Thanks to those nutrition labels, people suddenly realized that Clearly Canadian was loaded with sugar. It was pretty much premium branded soda pop. Worse still, it now had competition. Coca-Cola launched Fruitopia. The drink came in flavors like strawberry passion awareness and raspberry psychic lemonade. And PepsiCo had come out with its own fruit-flavored sparkling sweetened water called Pepsi Crystal. There was a massive launch. They hired Van Halen to do the soundtrack. As for Clearly Canadian, its sales tanked. We had to scramble, so I joined Clearly Canadian at sort of the end of the apex, and as they were struggling to recapture the magic. Orbitz was supposed to help turn the company around. My name's Ron Kendrick, and back in the days of Orbitz, I was vice president of product development and operations for Clearly Canadian. Ron Kendrick is a food scientist, and the idea for a soft drink with suspended gel beads had first surfaced a couple years earlier. Another company, a big food and beverage industry supplier, had developed the technology. And in 1995, the year before Orbitz launched, it had even been used, albeit briefly, in this short-lived beverage called Jumpin' Gems. One of the biggest challenges was handling the beads because the beads are very soft. They're a gelatinous material and you can't move the beads in the traditional way that you move fluids. You can't pump them. So we had to design and create and build a system that would move them via air pressure. Those beads, the floating gunk, were formed from this substance called gelin gum, a new food additive at the time that was derived from fermenting bacteria. Until orbits, nobody had been able to keep those balls afloat for the long haul to make them shelf-stable. If you moved the bottles too quickly from hot to cold, or even if you just put them on a truck, the beads could become this gelin gum swamp. That low distortion of noise would affect them and would cause them to sink. So if they go on a truck and the truck is rumbling at the wrong frequency... Then they can sink. So these beads are like angels' wings. They'll break if you breathe on them wrong. Yeah, a lot of times, yeah. Eventually, Ron and his colleagues, they managed to make it work. And the beauty of that beverage was that the beads, these floating balls, could have totally different flavors from the liquid they were suspended in. So Ron and his team could make pineapple banana and blueberry melon strawberry, not as a blend of flavors, but as distinct tastes inside a single bottle. Doug Mason. The bottle was a um, bulbous bottle, easy to hold in the hand. It was about a 10-ounce serving. The liquid was a little more viscous than a common soft drink. It had a lava lamp appearance, and the small balls that were suspended in this liquid were a vegetable base. It had a mouthfeel that was kind of like drinking diluted tapioca. So huh. some, peop some people found it objectionable. Some people found it very interesting. But visually, it was extremely impactful. Impactful? Just think about the drink style in the 90s, if you can remember back that far. You've got Coke, Pepsi, Snapple, fancy bottled waters like Evian. Remember when people used to always say, you know what, Evian spells backwards, naive? Anyway, the beverage aisle at the time is filled with these fairly ordinary drinks. 
And then Orbitz comes along. And Orbitz is undeniably, incredibly cool. The way that Orbitz was being marketed, it was very much trying to go for that quote-unquote youth demographic. This is Jen Cheney. I'm a TV columnist for New York Magazine's Vulture and the author of a book about the movie Clueless. Clueless, the Alicia Silverstone Valley Girl movie that gave us as if and whatever. You try driving in platforms. Oh, should I write them a note? Jen calls herself a nostalgist with taste. She's a 90s expert. And Orbits fit right into the landscape of the time. You look at the words that they were using to promote it. They use the word alternative beverage in their marketing. And I feel like alternative was this thing that... I most associate with music, like alternative rock in the 90s was a huge phenomenon. That word resonated with young people. And so the idea that something was an alternative beverage meant it was, you know, a little quirky, a little unconventional, not what everybody else was doing. You know, people were maybe starting to think more about how their beverage and food choices were reflective of their own identity. Huh. And because to me, Orbitz was not necessarily known for its great taste. It it was not, no. (laughs) It was more that it looked really cool, you know, because it looked like you were drinking out of like a lava lamp. That lava lamp look wasn't just some random coincidence. Culture for Jen operates on a pretty steady 20 year cycle. So in the 1970s, for example, there was a lot of nostalgia for the 50s and you could see it reflected in, you know, happy days and, uh, you know, a lot of things that were coming out around that time that represented the 50s. Then you move into the 80s and there's some more nostalgia back for the 1960s, which you could see in a lot of the films that came out, the music in the big chill, the wonder years. And so by the 90s, you start having nostalgia for the 70s. And you could see that too in, you know, the movie Boogie Nights, the movie Dazed and Confused. Uh, By the end of the decade, that 70s show was on TV. Of course. Uh, and, And I remember even going out in the 90s just to, you know, out with friends where we'd be dancing or not even dancing just somewhere where there was music and I felt like you would always hear music from that era not that you didn't hear 90s music but but I felt like I was hearing ABBA a heck of a lot considering that it was 1995 or 1996 my university years are a haze of ABBA songs I think you're absolutely right every time you went to the bar oh my god they're playing that song again And so Orbitz, with that lava lamp look, managed to capture nostalgia for the past. And in its total freakishness, it also nailed the alternative culture of its time. But what Orbitz doesn't get enough credit for is how it managed to also grasp the future. It was pretty crude. It was very crude back then. This is Jeff McLean. He's a graphic designer who developed the Orbitz bottle and marketing campaign, as well as something that was a pretty new idea in 1996. He developed its worldwide web page. We could put a lot of bells and whistles on that site that people would cringe at today. Bells and whistles? The first thing you saw when you got to Orbitz's splash page was a text announcement reading, set gravity aside and prepare to embark on a tour of the Orbiterium. You know, bad, cheesy music, cartoons, all kinds of weird stuff that I think was out of fashion probably two months later after we did it. (laughs) As for other forms of advertising, print, TV, and radio... 
Orbitz didn't have the budget, and there was no way they were going to be able to hire Van Halen. So the company borrowed from a growing concept at the time, guerrilla marketing. Here's Jonathan Cronin. All media at the time, this is way before social media, was expensive. A billboard in New York is expensive. We needed to get in front of our consumers who, during the summer, were outside. So we went to beaches. We were in New York driving up and down the city in this Orbitz deckled van, jumping out at a street corner for five minutes before we'd get ushered away, but we'd build a crowd. We would let the stores in the area know we were doing it, so they would, we would sell to them just before we were doing it, so then somebody could go and buy it later on. So it was, it was thought through. The drink launched first in the U.S. in four local markets. By the spring of 1997, it was distributed continent-wide. The reaction we got was phenomenal uh, in terms of the press coverage we got. We ended up being on TV because we were interviewed by morning news shows saying, what is this you've wrath on us? What is this product that you have brought to us? What are we supposed to do with it? And would allow us to talk about it, engage, get more publicity. That publicity would feed other publicity. Jeff McLean, that graphic and web designer, he even took a crew to L.A. to make a promo video. They shot around Venice Beach and Sunset Boulevard. Jeff still has a copy on VHS. And while it was definitely a low-budget production, it also managed to show a really particular slice of youth culture at the time. It's filled with skateboarders, beach rats, young, smiling bodybuilders, the exact sort of market that Orbitz hoped to draw. I like that. When we went out and did the video, we had, you know, T-shirts to give away and skateboard stickers. And so obviously that skate surf culture and going after a much younger audience for this product, kids that would think it was interesting and cool and want to drink it and are probably more predisposed to trying something that looks gross uh, <laughs> would, would be something, you know, that they would want to do. That was another way the drink was ahead of its time. Orbitz wasn't aiming to hit every demographic the way Coke and Pepsi and even Snapple had to. Within the beverage industry, it was one of the early adopters of what's called segmented marketing, aiming products at particular demographics. So you could divide up the market by race, as some companies did. One contemporary of Clearly Canadian even had one line of soft drinks for white people and another sweeter line for Latinos and African Americans. Or, as with Orbitz, you could target your product not to a particular race, but to one single influential age group, teens. And at least in the drinks trial period, that combination of low-budget guerrilla advertising and teen-focused marketing worked. The anecdotal stories are that people went nuts. This is Tom Coltai, a beverage industry veteran who was VP of operations at Clearly Canadian. There was this spontaneity to people wanting to try it, whether they liked it or not. They were pretty likely to buy another bottle if for no other reason to show somebody how wonky and weird this product was. So the trial, what we call trial in the beverage industry, was extraordinarily high. Orders for Orbitz flooded in. And that's when the company received an offer that could make or break the brand. The offer came from the Canadian arm of 7-Eleven. You know, they guaranteed 100% distribution, that it would be in every single store, enforced corporately, which was unusual because usually there's an interaction with the 
regional managers and the store managers. But this this was the real deal. Like they wanted this product in every single store. In exchange, they demanded that we have a three-month inventory consistently available to them that was ready to go. And so we had to have all the inventory associated uh, with a three-month 7-Eleven generated projected demand ready to go for them. That 7-Eleven offer could bring some big rewards, but the risks were considerable. And we had some animated discussions internally about what that meant, whether we should be buying into their projections, doing our own, what were our own projections. In some cases, they were more aggressive than 7-Elevens. And so, you know, it became kind of an executive committee debate as to whether we were going to go for this or not. Yeah, we all walked about three feet taller after... Jonathan Cronin, that VP of marketing. We made the presentation and they shared their interest. And then immediately after the high fives went on for, I'd say, a couple of days, the reality of, okay, how do we do this? Because the challenge of a 7-Eleven is they want it everywhere at the same time. In the beverage business, manufacturers have to get their product to every individual retail store. Onto the shelves, into the fridges. That's how it's always been. So it's not like selling, say, cereal or soup, where you can just ship to a retailer's distribution center. And beverage makers have to manage inventory, too. They have to keep those individual stores from ever running out. So most beverage companies rely on specialized distributors. And those distributors do a lot more than just deliver drinks. They also decide which beverages ever get in front of your eyes. You're at the behest and the whim of these distributors. This is Barry Nathanson, the publisher of BevNet, one of the industry's go-to trade publications. I'm sort of like the grandpa of the industry. Barry's been at it for going on 23 years. He covered the launch of Orbitz. I thought then, and I think now, it was one of the coolest products that ever came into the beverage industry. When you ask Barry about distribution, you realize it's a lot more critical than people outside the business think. The distributor is a very, very powerful player in this industry. So they're the ones who just, to determine if they're going to take on your product. Then they go to their retail clients and say, here's my portfolio, here's what I have. If you can't find distribution, and that's, that's the, you know, the major issue for every beverage company, if you can't find distribution, it's irrelevant how good your product is. It's irrelevant whether the retailer wants it. If you can't get it into their hands, the product can't sell. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things <laughs> aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. And there's yet another force that can kill new beverages before they even make it into stores. The dreaded slotting allowances. Slotting allowances. A lot of retailers make beverage makers pay to play. The price can be as much as $5,000 per product per year per store. So 
If you have a brand with, say, four different flavors, you're in for somewhere between 10 and 20,000 bucks just to get your bottles onto a single shelf. So it precluded most of these little companies from being able to get on the shelf. So the big guys had this domination uh, that, you know, we will buy the shelf space. So whether the product was good or not, it was irrelevant. The retailers made money no matter what, just for owning the shelves. But that old model of the distributors as gatekeepers and retail slotting fees keeping out the riffraff, it started to crack with the advent of new age beverages. Beverages like Snapple. Snapple? No thanks. Snapple? No thanks. Snapple? No. Too fruity. Snapple, made from the best stuff on earth. The history of the Snapple guys, they were three office cleaning people. That was their business. They were the ones who come at night, you know, their staff, and clean the offices in New York. And they were out on Long Island, and one of them mixed this drink. And they liked it, and the three of them said, let's do this thing. Snapple started in the late 1970s, and its distributors were a little like the company's founders. They were small timers. They handled the business at lunch counters, at bodegas and corner delis. In some cases, Snapple just outsourced its distribution to regular schmoes with fans. Everything the company did was folksy, unpolished. They got their order processing clerk, a woman named Wendy Kaufman, to star in the company's TV ads. Hi from Snapple, a while ago. She became known as the Snapple Lady, and the Snapple Lady became a household name. The company smashed through the old distributor and slotting fee system. Because a retailer would look and say, I want to be known as a cutting-edge retailer. I want to have all these cool, hip products. So we will take them on regardless of slotting. Within 20 years of its founding, Snapple did almost $700 million annually. Slotting is still a factor in the industry. But uh, if you have a terrific, exciting new brand, they will give you the opportunity. Orbits, like Snapple... Orbitz was one of those terrific, exciting new brands. Retailers gave it the sort of exposure that most other beverage companies could only dream about. And in a lot of cases, they did it for absolutely free. Doug Mason. We were able to get listings in stores as a small beverage company that normally would cost you millions of dollars to have the shelf space. Barry Nathanson. I mean, you looked at it, you know, people, the, the retailers and the distributors, they saw the products that we want a part of that. As for that make or break 7-Eleven deal, of course the company said yes. Here's Tom Coltai, the operations guy. The store managers themselves were so excited about it that they would place bottles, sometimes all four flavors, because that's what we started with, at the counter, which is where the, you know, the Tic Tacs and the Juicy Fruit word that that creates sort of the spontaneous and you know the anecdotal stories are that people went nuts you know they'd come in the store and they'd see these four bottles they were all different colors they were crazy all in one bottle and so you know what is that well it's orbits well you know where can i get it well it's in the cooler by the summer of 1997 millions of thirsty curious people were reaching into those coolers and orbits became the talk of an entire continent Remember Rosie O'Donnell with the hit daytime talk show? 
Rosie was scathing about orbits. She hated it. But hey, she was funny scathing. And more important, it was free publicity. Orbits got a ton of that. The drink made Good Morning America, and Rolling Stone named it the hot drink of 1996. People either loved it or hated it. Spy Magazine put it on its list of the year's very worst people, places, and things, right alongside the Macarena. The good times for Orbits looked as though they might never end. But there were nagging issues in the background. First off, even though Orbits was aimed at teenagers, it was a premium-priced beverage. It came in a fancy, custom-made, all-glass bottle. In the U.S., in 1996 money, Orbits cost $1.29 a pop. Jonathan Cronin, that VP of marketing. So I can get a 16-ounce Coca-Cola for 99 cents, or I can get this 10-ounce bottle of Orbitz. Boy, that Orbitz better be something special and different. And the second issue was closely related to the first one. Orbitz's novelty, the very innovation that created it, also made it really expensive to manufacture. That floating ball technology came from another company, so clearly Canadian had to pay royalties to use it. The drink had to be made with novel equipment, and the custom bottles it sold in had to be developed from scratch. In the background, the whole time Orbit's mania is hitting, Tom Coltai, that operations chief, is doing everything he can to hedge the company's bet. For sure there was people within the company that thought that this was the next Coca-Cola. And I wanted to believe that because our own security, you know, as employees, we, we wanted to believe that. But my core job was to create sanity between the purchasing side of things and the sales side of things. And so if I did everything in my role as a purchasing agent or a logistician for the company uh, that sales projected would happen, we would have been in deeper shit a lot sooner. But Orbitz's biggest problem, its biggest problems were the two things you'd think a beverage company would nail in an important new product. Taste and texture. Orbitz was sweet, syrupy sweet, and the texture was a real challenge. Back in the mid-1990s, thick, syrupy drinks with chewy, squishy, floating balls, they weren't exactly yet a thing. Doug Mason. It didn't end up being the product I was trying to create. So the beads, when somebody swallowed this drink, weren't something you could kind of pop into your mouth and get a flavor rush. Uh, They were kind of bland. So they they became a bit objectionable to drink, which is why it had a a shorter life than it could have had we been able to technically overcome that. Jeff McLean, that designer who made the promotional Orbitz video in L.A., he saw an even more visceral response. I think we only had out of, you know, the hundreds of people we talked to, I only think one person threw up. So that (laughs) that was a success. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. Or at least it wasn't a success for long. After Orbitz went continent-wide in 1997, the brand failed hard. It collapsed pretty much in the course of a single summer. Orbitz became one of the most spectacular beverage flameouts of all time. And 20 years later, it can be hard to untangle all the accounts of what went wrong. 
So it really was this extraordinarily steep ascent and then a really hard crash and burn. And it involved something to the tune of $6 million in raw material inventories that we were sitting on at the time. Tom Coltai, that operations guy, says that 7-Eleven pulled the plug when Orbit's sales slipped. And from that point onward, its downfall was inevitable. When 7-Eleven assesses whether you're going to get your feet of space in the store and in the cooler, they're looking at turnover. I mean, there's just a dollars per foot of shelf space. It's, it's pretty simple math. And I think there was an overreaction on 7-Eleven's part because by the time they said no, other retailers had already picked up on the notion that 7-Eleven was starting to lose interest, and so they weren't going to pick up interest at that stage. Barry Nathanson says Clearly Canadian was just too short of money to give Orbitz the promotional support new beverages need. You know, people have done it for a half a million. I say, as a rule, you have to have $2 million. And that's just for the first wave. And then a year or two into it, you have to start the fundraising. I use a line of demarcation is if a beverage is around after five years, they have a chance of being successful, moderately successful. The company's marketing head, Jonathan Cronin, he has a different spin about all this. Jonathan says Orbitz was actually a success because it gave the company the short-term cash and publicity boost it needed. It was a summer fad, and it had a great summer, and fads can be a whole lot of fun. But whatever happened, what they all agree on is after people tried their first and maybe their second Orbitz, they didn't go back for a third or a fourth. much can you innovate uh, before you lose people in the beverage business? Well, you can, you can innovate as, as much as you want if you can prove the functionality and efficacy of the products. Barry Nathanson, that industry watcher from BevNet magazine. What happens is people all come out, you know, and it becomes the wave. We want a product that has ginseng and guarana and this and that. We want something for sleep. We want something for energy. We want something for, you know, to uh, the relaxation drinks. For me, beverages are very simple. Points one, two, three, four, and five are taste, 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 taste. Then, if there's functionality, if there's efficacy, if the packaging is right, if it's priced right, then you've got a chance to make it. Too many people get lost in the fact that they're going to create these brilliant brands and they taste like crap. For the record, Barry says he really liked the taste of Orbitz. It really tasted good. But in his quarter century following the beverage business, he's grown accustomed to seeing failures. He even keeps a couple hundred of those beverage aisle bombs on display in his New York office. That's my wall of shame. These These are all failures. You have a wall of failed beverages. Yes, because and one of the reasons I do it is young entrepreneurs come in to me, oh, we're going to launch this, we're going to do this. I want to temper their enthusiasm. I want them to understand that beverage failure rate is about 85%. Over the years, Barry's seen the demise of scores of energy drinks. There was one called Pissed Off and another targeted just to women called Her. He's seen countless health beverages, Pepsi Blue, Tab Clear, 
Surge, Slice, and Josta. Pepsi Crystal, that clearly Canadian knockoff that launched with the help of Van Halen, by the time that had tanked, it cost PepsiCo an estimated $100 million. There was also this creepy avocado-colored ginseng drink called Mr. Green, and a kid's fruit juice concentrate with the perhaps unfortunate name of Purple. There was a camel's milk, which a guy from a few years ago, you know, standard packaging. And I said to him, I said, what's the price point to this? So it was like a 12-ounce bottle, and it was $18. Oh, boy. I said, wait, wait. I, I said, I don't, are you saying 18 for a case? He said, no, for one bottle. And it's like, I want to say, who in their right mind <laughs> would, would, go, would go spend $18 for a 12-ounce bottle of camel milk? And it tasted good. Admittedly, it did taste good. You got to be out of your mind. The consumer votes with its palate. Richard Branson uh, launched Virgin Cola. Did it with great fanfare. He had a army tank going through Times Square to announce the launch. And the product was god-awful. It tasted, it was horrendous. <laughs> so it's like, and this is this brilliant man. We should all be Richard Branson, a visionary. And it was like, it was junk. As for Orbitz, while the drink was a disaster, it wasn't junk. In some important ways, it was even ahead of its time. The premium pricing, the fancy glass bottles, and the flashy design that Orbitz helped pioneer are all common today in the beverage aisle. If you don't believe that, just check out the $10 kombuchas in your typical supermarket cooler case. And today, guerrilla marketing is such a common approach in the business that even just saying it feels almost cliché. The sort of segmented marketing that Orbitz tried, targeting key demographics instead of the entire mass market, is now standard operating procedure for a lot of new beverages. And 20 years after Orbitz folded, even drinks with floating balls have caught on, clear across North America, in drinks like Taiwanese bubble tea, Malaysian grass jelly milk, and Mumbai-style faluda. For Doug Mason, being ahead of the times continued to be a special gift. Yeah, it could have been. You know, we, we came out with the first vitamin water. They did, too. After Orbitz, it was fruit-flavored water enriched with vitamins. But thanks to a series of unfortunate events, the company had to pull the brand. And that other brand of vitamin-packed fruit-flavored water the one that didn't get pulled, that was the real billion-dollar baby. Refreshing combination of vitamins and electrolytes. Vitamin water, drink outside the lines. Vitamin water was actually a $4.2 billion baby. That's how much Coca-Cola paid to buy the company just last year. And if you Google Orbitz today, you don't usually come across the drink. Instead, you find a giant travel company. Orbitz has you covered, my friends. But there are plenty of people in the industry to keep the original Orbitz story alive. Mm -hmm. 
to new people in the industry, I and other lions like me who've been there so long, we, you know, people say, well, what, what was an exciting brand? What was a fun brand? Orbitz is always brought into the conversation. Orbitz captured it all because they marketed directly to kids. At the time, everyone was trying to be everything to everyone. And they just said, we're not making any pretense. This is a drink for kids. Sure, it was for kids, or for teenagers at least. But here at the Fridge Light, we've all promised to keep open minds. We're back in that studio for the taste test with Allison and Zoe. And it's fair to say, we're at least hoping for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Your face, Zoe. look like little salmon eggs. (laughs) They do. You guys ready? This is bottle one, vanilla orange. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Swirl. This is totally. It's really good. I kind of like it. It's cold. It's sweet. It's refreshing. It's citrusy. And the balls aren't as vile as you'd think they'd be. It reminds me of the liquid fluoride that you hold in your mouth at the dentist's office. Well, that's an endorsement. (laughs) I mean, there's a bit of a bouquet of gas station. It has not aged beautifully. It is not delicious. Come on. It does not taste good in my mouth. And I think Allison's comparison to fluoride is spot on. Okay, I swear, the first taste, it really was good. Or at least it wasn't awful. So this is not me just blindly jumping on the hate wagon, but... After you've had this stuff in your mouth for a while, everything not great about it, the sweetness, the thick, goopy texture, it just kind of builds. It's very, uh, it's a little thicker. It's a little syrupy. Oily, maybe? A little oily. Maybe, like, the mouthfeel could be almost snotty. About 10 seconds after you have some, it just doesn't go away. It's like my entire mouth is... um, Whatever I was about to say, it doesn't matter. Because a couple of seats over, Zoe's got this squinched, kind of, well, panicky look on her face. You look like you might throw up. Round two, raspberry citrus. This one does smell funkier than orange vanilla. It does smell pretty funky. Like, maybe it's gone a bit off. No, it's definitely gone off. But like they said in the 90s, whatever. I do not like. <laughs> I mean, this is the downfall of Orbitz. The taste. Yeah. You look, look like, you look like you just drank, like, frog spawn. That sounds more appealing to me. <laughs> At least yeah. I know what it is. If it's the 1990s and someone hands you a bottle of this, are you going to drink it? Absolutely. It looks like a party in a bottle. It looks like fun. Are you going to drink more than one bottle? We could play more tape here, but honestly, Orbitz is kind of like your first time walking to school alone or driving a car. It's like a first fumbled, hot-cheeked kiss. Orbitz is an artifact from the past. To some people, it's even a beloved one. As for that mystery, was Orbitz just too ahead of its time or was it just too weird? I'm going to go out on a limb here. The answer is both. Maybe the best thing to do is just to remember Orbitz as exactly what it was. It was a brief and exciting, and at least slightly world-changing, 
Summer Fling. This is the Fridge Light, and the voices you heard today were Doug Mason, Tom Coltig, Ron Kendrick, and Jonathan Cronin from Clearly Canadian. Graphic designer and Orbiterium explorer, Jeff McLean. Honorary beverage industry grandpa, Barry Nathanson, who is publisher of BevNet. And Jen Cheney, who's not only a TV columnist for New York Magazine's Vulture, but also the author of the definitive book about the movie Clueless. This episode was produced by Michelle Macklem, Zoe Tennant, Alison Broverman, Veronica Simmons, and me, Chris Noddle-Smith. The advertisements in this episode are sourced from YouTube. Additional music is by Paolo Pietro Paolo. Our executive producer is Arif Norani. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do not let us wind up on that wall of shame with the camel milk and the pissed-off energy drink. Write us a review. And if you don't mind, maybe say something more than just whatever. For more information on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. You can connect with us on Twitter and share photos with us on Instagram at FridgelightCBC. I'm Chris Noddle-Smith. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.